Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Park City, Utah. In fact, at the St. Regis Deer Valley. My next guest, the executive director of the Park City Institute and one of the legendary columnists here in the Valley. She's laughing, but it's true. Terry Orr, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How long have you lived here? I might be... The truth. The truth. I might be the oldest living person in Park City. Um, I have lived here since 1979. When 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 Park City was what a, a, a burger joint? I mean, it was. You it, know, um, we closed everything down in May, and it said yeah. gone fishing on a lot of the businesses, and then they reopened again in November. I mean, talk about seasonal. It was so seasonal, and what, when I what, what, what brought you here? Oh, I ran away. You know, like lots of people did in the 70s. I ran away from Tahoe, and I came to a different ski resort. So with, you were you were just a, you were a ski junkie? No, actually, I wasn't. You were, um, snow, you were a snow junkie. I, I liked that, but it was a place to start over with my two kids. I got divorced, and this seemed like a good place to set the reset button. I want to go someplace where they close for five months a year. Well, it didn't last long enough, <laughs> anyway. Um, and the silver mines were still running when I first came here. Now you're dating yourself. Now you're now for you've done three it. months for three months, and then they closed because the water table was too high to uh, continue to extract silver here. And they've never reopened. No, they haven't. Wow. Okay. Now we know why you came here why did you stay here it turned out to be a terrific place to raise kids it turned out to be a terrific place to reinvent myself and how did you reinvent yourself well um i had a children's clothing store at tahoe and i had to walk away from all of that and i came here and i had always wanted to write and so i went to the park record which for those people who remember tabloid when it wasn't a nasty word it was a eight page a weekly a weekly uh eight page paper and i took in a sample column um um, for someone who had dropped out of college, that was kind of a bold move. And they said, this is great. Can you start next week and we will pay you $10 a month to write your column? Not even $10 a column? And I said, you will pay me? I am so excited that you will pay me to write. So, <laughs> Boy, did they have you. Yeah. Uh, they did. They did. 
And you started. And I started, and I still write the column. I eventually became a reporter, and then I became the editor of the paper. All right, so what were the stories that you were writing back then? I mean, what, what was the breaking news? Well, you know, small town news is uh, the breaking news is what's going on at city council. The breaking news is the high school, high school uh, football team, or always, basketball always. team. Always, um, That's kind of what we're losing in small town journalism. But you forgot one. You know what else is small town news? The police blotter. I used to write the blotter. Come on. I did, yeah, yeah. And, and what was the, I mean, I I was just, on, well, not just recently, we, we did a big story on, on one of the most remote islands in the world called St. Helena, which is in the middle of the South Atlantic, about 1,200 miles from Angola and 1,800 miles from Brazil. And I wanted, you always want to judge a place by, like, crime. What's the crime in St. Helena? You know what the crime was? Somebody misappropriated a 10-pound barbell from the gym, and the police were on the lookout. And that would be crime, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. we had people relieving themselves after 2 a.m. in the alleys behind the Shocked. bars. That was That was a big deal. Um, but then we went rapidly into a lot of drugs, like a lot of ski resorts did. So a lot of drug cases, a lot. We had uh, three drug murders in uh, a two-year period. Um, that was breaking news. That was, that was a big deal. Um, and then the developments, you know, so everything started to grow. Well, 2002. I was I was in a different job by 2002. But that but was Winter Olympics. It was, but the ramp up to that was a big deal. And of course, 2001 and 9/11 was something that happened right before the Olympics. So we were one of the first big events to happen after 9/11, and the security was crazy. I bet. Okay, so you reinvented yourself. You wrote the column, but things changed. This place went from a sleepy place to a not-so-sleepy place. It went from uh, runaway ski bums and, if you'll excuse the expression, an occasional divorcee, right? To, Thank you very much, yes. Well, uh, come on, you said it. No. Uh, to a very lifestyle-oriented, uh, upscale development. It, it took a while to, for the upscale part, and so for a really long time, we were a charming community of uh, everyone was kind of in it together, and we were all here from someplace else. There were very few people who were not only not native Utahns, but not even native parkites. So when it came to holidays, we invented our own families and we invented our own traditions. So a Thanksgiving For table. Example. I would have a Thanksgiving table with um, the people who had just started the ski shop and the minister from the kind of generic community church and the police chief and just a kind of variety of people at the table. All the orphans. They were the orphans. Yeah, yes, they were. And the thing is, back when you first came, and I experienced this because I was in Utah during the Gary Gilmore days. And, oh, yeah. Right, covering that story. Your liquor laws were out of control. Well, out of control sounds good, but they no, were... No, 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 no. <laughs> why, why don't you explain? Oh, they were beyond conservative. You had to have a membership to a club to buy a mini bottle that could be at your table with the right size glass that you had to buy the right things and you always had to have food. And it's, it's wacky. And you can still bring in your own bottle of wine at dinner so that you're not buying an expensive bottle of wine off the, the restaurant's uh, right. you know, menu, which you would never do that in San Francisco or New York. No. Or I remember when we were covering the, Gil the, the Gary Gilmore story, you know, all the network guys were coming and I was working for Newsweek and we went out to dinner one night and they tried to order a drink. You couldn't do it. No. So they sent me out. That was my job. I was the young guy. They sent me out to the state liquor store. Right. Remember the state liquor store? Oh yeah. And we still have them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when I went there and, and, and so I, was, I was laughing. I, I bought the bottle of wine. I brought it back into the restaurant and the waitress said, would you like me to open it for you? He said, yeah. And then I looked at her and said, but if it's not good, I can't send it back. Well, and she will also charge you for what's the called corkage, a corkage, corkage fee. We, we ended up calling it a screwage fee once we had <laughs> screw top bottles. So. And then in 2002, in preparation for the Winter Olympics, somebody got smart and started to change those laws. A lot of people got smart, and they, they went to the state government and the Mormon church, and they said, look, this is never going to fly. We can't uh, say the world is welcome here and not serve them a drink. So that changed a lot. It did. And, uh, I mean, I remember when I first came to Utah as a correspondent for Newsweek, and I would stay at the old Hotel Utah. Oh, it, fabulous hotel. Which was a Westin in those days. And half of it was, was occupied as a hotel, and the other half was the elders of the Mormon church. That's right. Spencer Kimball. I remember that name. And I remember, no matter what room they ever put me in, if I looked out the window, there was Angel Moroni looking at me going, don't even think about it. <laughs> it's true. That is an imposing statue. Right? It was an imposing statue. And if you ordered coffee, we were sure that there was a black mark that went next to your name at room service. Although, I'll tell you what I did. Um, I was the last person ever allowed in to the Wasatch Mountain Genealogical Records. Mm. And they had the nuclear blast doors and... 
And that was an amazing experience for me to look at how the Mormons were so devoted to genealogy and tracing your roots. And this, they still are. They still are. This is way before Ancestry.com or any of that. This was just a, a, an amazing amount of research, all on microfilm in those days. Right. And then yeah. they closed the doors. They wouldn't let anybody else in after, after me. Well, see what you did? See what I did. But at least I got a chance to do it. That was amazing. I learned so much about about that religion. I learned so much about the community just by here, being here over an extended period of time. Now that building, which was the Hotel the hotel Utah, is now just all part of the Mormon church. It's not a hotel anymore. Correct. Right? And it's, it's literally walking distance to the tabernacle. It, it's yeah. next door. Yep. It's next door. We're talking to Terry Orr. What was the former name of the Park City Institute? The Park City Performing Arts Foundation. It's true, yes. And it got to be such a mouthful. And then we changed our direction <laughs> a little bit. We went to the Park City Institute. And you're dedicated to bringing in, you know, world-quality performance and art here to a place that really was never defined by it, but now is. Well, I would say yes and no. Um, the Dewey Theater was on Main Street during the silver mining days in the late 1800s. Was Miss Kitty performing? <laughs> no, no, Jenny Lynn, the Swedish nightingale. Thank you. Came here to perform, <laughs> and P.T. Barnum brought her through. As, uh, as I suspected. Yeah, yes. yeah. So there was always a, a love of doing, of knowing that the way to kind of humanize, civilize the miners, and then later the skiers, was to have art do that. And so the Egyptian theater opened opened in 1926. It was one of those uh, many theaters opened during the uh, 1920s that were Egyptian theaters because of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. When you came here in the 70s, was it still open? It was called the Silver Wheel Theater. It was running as a melodrama house um, one weekend a month. It was purchased by Randy and Debbie Fields of Mrs. Fields Cookies, and they wanted to turn it into condominiums. Oh, boy. I was a reporter by then. I was remarried to the guy who was running um, the art center that was dating that was a community center. And I went to them and I said, please don't turn it into condominiums. And they said, look, um, if you can, and this was 1980 when it was a recession here. They said, if you can raise $50,000 in six weeks, we won't do it. I mean, $50,000 might as well have been $5 million. I raised uh, $4,800 or $48,000? I mean, 48000 sorry, thank you. And they said, close enough. And we renovated the theater. It reopened in October of 1981. And it's there today as a beautiful little jewel box is what Roger Ebert called it. Well, I just have one question to ask. At intermission, do they serve cookies? Um, they are long gone from the <laughs> equation and from each other, as you probably know. So. so no more. So I got involved with that. Then I, you know, went on to be the editor of the paper and put the arts aside, um, got rid of the second marriage and moved on in life to do other things. And uh, when I left the paper to work on a book, I then was doing a lot of fundraising for the Peace House, which is the women's shelter that is here in Park City, for some other charities. And a friend of mine came to me and said, could you help us raise money for a high school auditorium? We were the last school district, believe it or not, in the state of Utah that didn't have a high school auditorium. Well, we can't have that. So we didn't. And we had a bond election, and we made it into a joint-use facility. Uh, Heather and Robert Urich, the actor and actress, were living here part-time. They said, we'll help you. And we opened in 1998 um, to be a joint-use facility with the school district. And we have been the home of the Sundance Film Festival, the anchor facility of the Sundance Film Festival, ever since. What a wonderful roundabout way to get there. I love it. I love. It. Now, what about the Park City Institute's theater? Well, we are a 1,200-seat space, and since we opened, we have had, uh, you know, I wanted to not have provincial uh, art here in Park City, uh, performing art. I wanted to make sure we were bringing the world to Park City. So we have had outstanding national dance companies and theater companies and musicians. Uh, since I became a part of the TED community, I have brought in speakers from Edward Snowden via Snowbot to Monica Lewinsky to Dr. B.J. Miller, um, to uh, Bob Woodward, all kinds of great speakers, in addition to the Alvin Ailey Dance Company and Grupo Corpo from Brazil and Great Theater and Sherman Alexi and Anne Lamott. And we just try to give a real flavor uh, so we are not, um, we're not exactly your grandfather's version of Utah or Park City. And you're doing it all year round. We are. It's very ambitious, and we are fortunate that the St. Regis is the title sponsor of our summer concert series. So it's called the Big Stars Bright Nights Concert Series, and we love having them be a part of it. Now, are we going after marriage number three? I just need to know. Oh, gosh, no. I'm so much smarter than that now. <laughs> because that's another kind of fundraising, you realize. Oh, it, it certainly became that, yeah. <laughs> 
or philanthropy, either way you want to look at it. Uh, I've, I've learned to just look at it through a different lens. I got it. So what's the biggest challenge here for you now in Park City? Boy, personally, professionally? Professionally. We're not going to get personal. <laughs> um, professionally, it is, you know, now there are so many nonprofits. There are 183 nonprofits in within the city limits of a town that only has 8,000 full-time residents. How did that happen? You know, there's like friends of the tuna fish. I mean, there's like all these very random... <laughs> Wait a minute. I am a card-carrying member of the Friends of the <laughs> Tuna Fish. Then you should know this. You should and probably... You, you know what I say? Sorry, Charlie. Only oh, the best tuna... So oh, I had to do it. It was too easy. I know. It was too easy. Um, so there, there are lots of great, worthy causes here, and then there are some that are just a little more fringe. But, you know, the National Ability Center you mentioned before is a terrific organization Those here. guys do amazing work. Amazing work, and we're so lucky that they're here. And, and there are so many great um, organizations here that are educational as well as sports-related and arts-related. Well, I, the biggest takeaway from me talking to you is that after all is said and done, it's still a community of 8,000 people. It, it is. Um, you know, the, the county limits are a little larger, so there's another 20,000 people there. But year-round, it's 8,000 people within the city limits. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me. Let's float down to Peru. Every chance I get to take a train. We've done this this show from, from the trains. In Europe, we've done the show from right. the trains. We did the show from the Southern Crescent, coming from Washington, D.C., all the way down to New Orleans. My next guest knows just a little bit about trains. In fact, he's known as uh, Mr. Railroad. <laughs> he's the executive director of the Heber Valley Railroad right here in Utah, which, by the way, is Utah's only historic railroad. That's right. Tell me about the history of this train. Okay. Well, the uh, the tracks were built in 1899 by the Denver Rio Grande Railroad. So this year, in fact, is the 120th anniversary of trains. And they operated that railroad until, what, 1965? That's right. And then? And then uh, cars cars took over. After that, it was uh, a privately owned tourist railroad until 1989. So the tracks were still being used. Yes. And now? And now it's uh, owned by the state of Utah. It's a tourist railroad, and we operate year-round and uh, carry a lot of people on a lot of fun rides. Tell me about the actual engines themselves. So we have, first we have two uh, 1907 Baldwin steam locomotives. That's fired the, by what? Fired by coal in the past, but oil in the future. Uh, the, the good news is... Well, you know, out in Arizona, we did a story on CBS about, about the Grand Canyon Railway, yeah. and they're powered by cooking oil. Yes. Well, we're going to be powered by used motor oil. And uh, both of those steam locomotives are being restored and converted right now. So the bad news, neither is in service today. Um, One of them will be next year. But we're also powered by 1950s GP9 diesel electric locomotives. Wow. And those you have now? We have. Those are are great. Those are the ones I remember when I was growing up. Yes, yes. Not the other one. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But the thing is, that restoration project has got to take some money. It's it's about a million dollars for each one to both do their inspection that you have to do uh, regularly and to, to convert it. I'm going to ask a really stupid question because so much local knowledge goes away when technology goes away. So how do you inspect something when you don't know what to look for? You know, there's a small core of people both in the FRA as... as FRA stands for? For the Federal uh, Railroad. Thank you. Regulatory group, as well as uh, in the rail community who maintain steam locomotives. There's about 150 operating steam locomotives in the U.S. Still today? Yeah. Wow. So somebody's got a manual. That's right. (laughs) There's a a manual, and there's an inspection and a procedure. How long do the tracks run? We have 15 and a half miles of track from downtown Heber, uh, around the Deer Creek Reservoir, and down a beautiful river, the Provo River. And I'm I'm suspecting you're going about 15, 20 miles an hour? You've got it exactly right. right? Am I right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly right. (laughs) Exactly. Do you stop along the way? We do. So uh, Soldier Hollow, where the 2002 Winter Olympic Biathlon was held, you know, it's strange. We frequently get robbed there. It seems to happen very often. And, and then we stop down at the end of the line along the river and uh, let people get out and see the sights there. 
And uh, any plans on extending those tracks or no? No, probably not. You know, in my dreams, we would have a track right up here to the St. Regis. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Well, look, if you take a look at the history of trains in America, the trains went to the hotels. I mean, that's exactly how people look. Look at the Canadian railway system. I mean, every one of those hotels today, which is now Fairmont, used to be a Canadian Pacific hotel. And those trains would stop in in Quebec and in Montreal and in Toronto and and just keep going all the way to Vancouver. You know, you, since you mentioned Canadian Pacific, the Hebrew Valley Railroad just purchased 19 pieces of rail equipment from Vancouver, Canada, from a historical group, and 10 of them are down here already. Can I ask a really stupid question? Yeah. How'd you get them here? They are picked up with a crane and put on a flatbed train car, hauled on three different railroads to Provo, Utah, and then put on a semi-truck and brought up the canyon. So it's an ordeal. It's quite a process. How long did that take? About six weeks that's a slow moving train (laughs) to move four of them from vancouver yeah from vancouver to to utah amazing and you're all year round we we operate year round let me guess you run a christmas train too oh it's our of course you i knew it i knew it okay i'm not surprised about that mark nelson executive director of the heber valley railroad thank you for coming in man thank you very much And do i get a ride when i come back anytime just come on down will i get robbed probably yeah okay thanks a lot yeah (laughs) We're not in Kansas anymore. My next guest has a great history here, although he's not from here. He's a Hall of Fame Paralympic skier and motivational speaker. One, I think, actually drives the other, if you had to had to think about it. Chris Waddell, how are you, sir? I am well, thank you. How are you? Originally from Massachusetts? Originally from Massachusetts. I was born in a little town called Methuen, Mass, outside of Boston, and grew up in Western Mass in a place called Granby. And what brought you here? I was still competing when the Olympics and Paralympics were being hosted here in 2002, and I... I, I, was, I was here for that. Were you here for that? All sure, because right. I was at NBC. We had the Olympics. Right, exactly. And I had competed here since 91, and it was always nice weather when I came here and it was always sunny and warm and and I thought well that seems like a good place to be and then and then uh, and then I finally could you know made enough money that I could actually buy a place and so I bought a place out here and I thought it'd be three years through the games and spend 20. Now when you say Paralympic most people don't understand how grueling that is. Most people don't understand all the other parts of your body that have to be in eight times better shape to be able to do what other people might even try to do. There's a, there's a lot of learning. There is. There, I mean, we as human beings have an amazing ability to adapt, right? And so, but part of it is trying to be strategic and figure out what we need to do, what we need to learn, how we can put ourselves and our bodies in the best positions to be successful. And so there's a long learning process there, but then also trying to engage muscles or trying to get other muscles to take over for the ones that you can't necessarily use. And the lessons that you learn then you want to apply you most assuredly want to apply them i mean first of all in in performance in competition and you know my, my thought on that was always that you wanted to teach your body instinct because you can't really think when you're competing so the idea in training is that you do it over and over again and you hope to do it perfectly so that your muscles know what to do so that when you actually do it then you don't have to think about it because thinking slow however however life's all about adjusting it is all about adjusting it is all about adjusting but hope Hopefully you've you've played enough case, scenarios. Or in your case, adjusting quickly. Adjusting quickly so that you know all of the scenarios and so that it, it becomes instinctive, it becomes intuitive. Well, you became the fastest monoskier in the world. Explain what that means. Well, and how fast were you going? How fast was I going? I was going about 70 miles an hour. The fastest I had gone was about 70 miles an hour. But what, the interesting part for me is that as a monoskier, so I ski in, it's mono, one ski, and it's sort of like a, a frame. It's almost like a motorcycle without the motor, without the uh, wheels, without the handlebars. Uh, without the brakes. Without the brakes, exactly. I thought yes. I'd mention that. That's a good point. That's yeah. good Good thinking. I appreciate that. Yeah. But it has a shock absorber to replicate your the movement of your knees and hips and ankles and all that stuff so that you don't, you know, so that you can absorb bumps. But uh, I was in the most disabled of the three monoski classes, so had the fewest amount of muscles to work with. Okay. Do us a favor because this is radio. Yes. Explain your disability. Explain my disability. So I broke, uh, I broke thoracic 10 and 11, so those two vertebrae, which corresponds to about, you know, belly button-ish. And when was that? How old? 
I was 20 years old. That was in 1988. I was in a skiing accident. I was ski racing in college at Middlebury College. And in the middle of a turn, my ski popped off. Just freak thing. Just warming up. First day of Christmas vacation. And I broke those two vertebrae. Damaged the spinal cord. At least you're alive. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the thing that you realize. It becomes really critical at that point that it is, it becomes life and death. I mean, you, our, our lives are so complicated, but in a moment like that, it becomes relatively simple. And then it becomes life and life redefined. It's right, life redefined or, or being able to do what you want to do, right? And not redefine, but defining your life, I think, is really taking control and being in charge is something that's really important. And for me, that was getting back into sport. And getting back into sport, I wanted to... I wanted to be a great ski racer. I felt like ski racing owed me something in that that I'd never reached my potential. But that's when I first started out, I said, I'm going to be the fastest monoskier in the world. And, and people said, well, you'll never be able to do it because all these other guys have more muscles to work with. I basically have the muscles right underneath my sternum. And some of these guys would walk up in the other classes and sit down and get in their skis. And, and in Lillehammer 94, in the downhill, in the fastest of the events, I beat everyone in the world and and to me that really that was you know that, that but the but thing the, that blew my mind you be, you tried to become the first unassisted paraplegic to summit mount kilimanjaro yes yeah so it, as a metaphor it works really well right we are all climbing a mountain no matter who we are we're yeah. climbing a mountain and when i went 70 miles an hour on one ski that picture didn't fit with the picture of somebody in a wheelchair so that's what i wanted to do was to was was really in climbing the mountain people could understand that struggle that much more and be able to relate to me relate me my struggle to their struggle and and i think we did it pretty well and my team made a made a fantastic movie on it called one revolution and 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 really we told the story of you know an ordinary person trying to achieve extraordinary things but now telling that story and continuing to tell that story as a member of this community here in park city how are you applying that how are you helping others now how am I helping in, in a lot of different ways? I mean, I think for me, skiing here at Deer Valley, uh, skiing with the St. Regis is, is it's my best dog and pony show. It really is. People come skiing with me and they go, well, well you're actually pretty good at this. And I say, yeah, I've, I've done it for a long time. You know, there were times that I skied more during the summer than most people skied during the winter. I've put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of thinking into it. And I think that that's, that's part of what we all need to see. I think that we can see a crushing, potentially tragic event. And no matter who we are, we're going to, we're going to encounter that in our lives but we learn from other people and see okay well this person persevered throughout that and and maybe i'm capable of things that i didn't think i was capable of well it's one thing it's sort of one dimensional to look at you as a role model for somebody who has a physical disability it's another thing to look at you as a role model for somebody who doesn't have a physical disability you know i think ultimately it is the human experience right the human experience and those who have experienced the most and and we're talking about great things and we're talking about tragedies they're the ones that we ask the questions, really, like, how did you do it? And and I think that, that that really what I'm coming through is is the human experience and being able to say, yeah, this is what I did. And, and part of it is having a big goal and being scared to death half the time and finding a way to make that a reality. So Mount Kilimanjaro notwithstanding, is there one thing you, you haven't done yet that you're just, you cannot wait to do? Oh. The truth, you can share it now, then I can call you crazy. <laughs> well, well, I am crazy. Uh, no, I think that the big thing is, I mean, the big thing that I'm working on right now is is actually publishing my memoir. I've wanted to tell my story, to turn my story. I've harbored those that desire to be a writer for a long time, and so now I'm putting that out there. I've done it serially. People can go to my, my blog at chriswaddellspeaking.com backslash blog and check it out. Please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest I've known for a long time, actually, and she always amazes me because when it comes to speed, I don't think there's anybody faster. <laughs> Two-time Olympian uh, and, of course, former U.S. ski team member, but Kaylin Richardson how fast did you go downhill? Uh, the fastest I was clocked in a World Cup downhill was 85 miles per hour, I believe. <laughs> I don't get that fast on Deer Valley slopes that they know about. No, I don't get that fast out here. No, but 85 miles an hour, I mean, I, I'm already in the hospital and not recovering. I could get you there. You come here and ski with me. We'll, we'll, well, we'll, no, we'll no, get no, you somewhere. No, no, come on. Try to keep a straight face. <laughs> it's, how about this? Not going to happen. We'd make sure you had the time of your life and we'd keep you safe. That's that's safety number one, fun, a yeah, close yeah. second. Right. Wrap me in bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just roll me down the hill. There's Well, it's funny because people always say, can you start skiing at a later age? And I always say, yes, you definitely can. It's just, Why are you looking at me and saying the words later age? Well, 
you know, I'm just saying you're not 20. You're not freshly out of college. I think it's fair to say that. Okay, it's fair. Yeah. Okay. okay so I always tell people, I'm like, you just have different goals. You don't take as many <laughs> risks, maybe. You, you oh, maybe, I take risks in other areas. Exactly. I, I know, do this show. That's I a know risk. this about you. You're a world traveler. I am. I am. Hmm. But I mean, 85 miles an hour. It's fast. Now. What brings you to Park City now? Because when you and I first met, it wasn't here. That's You have such a great memory. So when I was done racing in 2010, I retired, hung up my race boards, but I still wanted to ski. I still wanted to explore the other side of the mountains that isn't manicured slopes of a Fist World Cup. So I dabbled with some stuff in Los Angeles with broadcasting and whatnot, but I missed the mountains. And I came here to Utah, and I became a big mountain backcountry skier. But what I realized is I love sharing skiing with people. I really like igniting that spark that when people first get it, you know, especially if they're kind of on the fence about skiing, I have, I have a lot of confidence I can get them there. And Deer Valley has a program here called Skiing with a Champion. and That would be you. Uh, well, yes. yes. I, I'm a champion in some respects, but we have some other amazing champions as well. And there's about six of us. We're all Olympic athletes. And we just take people out for a ski experience. And it's completely bespoke. Some people, we ski only greens. Some people like to do the black diamonds. It's just fun to share this mountain with people. I just like to do the lift. Can I just do the lift? The lift is a great place for what we're doing right now, talking. Okay, so I would do very well there. Skiing's a social sport, Peter. You would do amazingly well. <laughs> yes, with two casts on, apres ski, drinking because it's never going to happen again. I can't tell you how many times, if the weather is a little bit inclement, uh, people sometimes think that we have to be intense, you know, to go skiing with me, that we have to go do, Okay, you well, know, let, well, let's talk about that. What does going skiing with you mean? And tell me, tell me the truth. I'll totally tell you the truth. And I know that this sounds like a Pollyanna answer, but it's absolutely not. I really gauge a good day of skiing by how many smiles are had. So what I do is when I take people skiing, we go up the first run, and I kind of ask them what do they want to get out of it. By the way, if I'm heavily sedated, I'll be smiling all the time. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> we'll, we'll arrange that beforehand. Uh, but I've had some people where they say they're, they're, they haven't skied in 20 years, and we'll start on the green slopes, and maybe the biggest breakthrough of the day is getting on a blue groomer. That's so a much blue fun. What? A gro- A groomed slope. So okay. when they take the you know the big machines and they groom it, so it's so it's nice and curated, and you can ski on it a little bit easier. And then some people I go skiing with, they've seen me in the Warren Miller films, and they want to kind of test the limits and what's cool about my level of skiing is I can watch someone make eight turns and I can know exactly where to take them at Deer Valley that's really fun and also a lot of times by the people, way you can watch me in one turn and say <laughs> you know what I'll see you at the bar but what's fun is that a lot of times people don't give themselves enough credit where I've had um especially especially women I'll say this where they're like oh I could I could never do a black diamond and I see them and they're really good super proficient have great technique and I'll say you can do this run, and a lot of times they'll look at it on the way up the chairlift, and they'll say, I can't do it. But then when I give them the confidence and I, and I say, I wouldn't steer you wrong. Trust me, I wouldn't take you on this run if you couldn't do it and have fun doing it, right? That's the other part of it, having What's fun. the most difficult run, not for you, but for the rest of the world here at Park City? I would say that the pinnacle at Deer Valley is probably the daily shoots on Empire. Empire is the more, uh, the more extreme mountain here at Deer Valley. And the great thing about Deer Valley is they've got a little bit of everything. There's a lot of mountains where maybe it's all extreme or it's all very novice. But the great thing about Deer Valley is you can ski it your whole life and continue to move up to Empire and to ski those daily shoots, which are pretty intense. I've skied in a Warren Miller segment here at Deer Valley, which people are surprised by because that's a pretty extreme kind of ski movie. And there was plenty of terrain to shoot that was that was inspiring. Well, I would like to make an official statement here, uh, and I think I can I can bank on it. You will never see me in a Warren Miller film. <laughs> I mean, but you know, with that voice, you have that voice, right? Yeah. Where Warren hasn't been narrating them when, you know, may he rest. I said you'd see me. You'd never I, I see know, me in a Warren Maybe we'd just like flip, flip you in. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you come here to Deer Valley, I know people. I'm connected. <laughs> kind of like you. Peter Greenberg is a great guy to know. He knows someplace and someone in every corner of the world. You're a good person to know. And I know Kaylin Richardson, two-time Olympian, former U.S. ski team member, and the person who is not going to get me up on the slips. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash 
travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. If you've not been here before, and I have been here many times before, you'd begin to realize that you know, it's been a skiing area since the 1930s, but the resort wasn't officially opened until about 1981. It was a really sleepy place. And then came 2002 in the Winter Olympics, and then everything changed. Everything got upgraded, even the liquor laws in this state. <laughs> but I mean, everything got upgraded, and somebody who knows a lot about that, he's the adjunct professor at the uh, BYU Marriott School of Business. He also knows a little bit about, about the Valley Chamber of Commerce here, Ryan Starks. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Uh, you, you heard my introduction, and you know, you've seen the changes. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what happened here since 2002. You're right. I think before 2002, like you had mentioned, the region was really sleepy. It was quiet. But then something magical happened when the Olympics came. and The area really got put on the map. Since that time, the populations continue to really grow like crazy. And now it's one of those destinations that people just can't get enough of. And yet, when you think about it, it's still small. I mean, the Hebrew Valley, what, 33,000 people? That's nothing. Yeah, you're right. So, we although, to, although before the Olympics, it was only 10,000. <laughs> only 10,000 before. So we have about 1,400 new people per year who are moving to the area. The Hebrew Valley is just minutes from Park City. We're just on the other side of Deer Valley Ski Resort. And people are taking note. And now they can live in a place where they're close to skiing. They're close to major markets. They're close to outdoor recreation. And yet, like you'd mentioned, it's still small enough to feel like a small town. Exactly. I, I mentioned the liquor laws. I have to I have to mention them because when I was here, I listen, I'm going to date myself. When I was in Utah, my very first time in Utah, I was the writing the cover story for Newsweek on Gary Gilmore. Um, and for those people who don't even know who Gary Gilmore was, it was major front page news in the United States for almost a year. He was the first person executed in the, in the United States in about 20 years under the most unusual circumstances. He was actually shot by firing squad. Um, and so I spent all my time in, in Salt Lake City, in, in Provo, in, in Draper, in Ogden, in uh, you name it. And what I noticed in those days was a purity that you wouldn't find in other communities, which, by the way, was refreshing, absolutely refreshing. And then a little bit of stupidity. And the stupidity, I mean, was with the liquor laws, because based on the liquor laws, just about every vehicle in the state of Utah had a bottle in it, <laughs> because... Yeah. Because you had to, because you couldn't buy liquor. You had, if you went to the restaurant, you couldn't order a drink. Uh, and 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 when Mitt Romney came in to run the Olympics in 2002, one of the things that turned things around was they changed the liquor law. And the good things about that is the actual DUI cases went down, uh, the, the automobile deaths went down because people weren't were driving as much with with bottles of, of booze in the car. Yeah, and even since then, it's really evolved. Uh, today, it's a pretty progressive liquor law, and I think people are surprised that they can actually get a drink wherever they are in Utah. <laughs> Après ski, buddy. Après ski. Uh, what, what's the biggest surprise for people who come here? I mean, obviously, you already have the draw for skiing, but there's also the off-season, which, by the way, I'm the biggest fan of. Um, I, you know, when you take a look at other ski resorts like, uh, you know, Wyoming and, 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 and most of Colorado, there are more people coming there in September and October sometimes than are coming mm -hmm. there for skiing. Yeah. So the Heber Valley really is just 45 minutes from Salt Lake International Airport. And so when people come, they're surprised how accessible everything is. Like you mentioned, in other states, sometimes you have to travel a couple of hours to get to ski or to get to other outdoor recreational activities. But within Utah and within the Heber Valley, you can be there in 45 minutes. And specifically in this valley that we live in, Park City's right there, literally minutes away. But we also have three state parks, which accounts for about 10,000 acres of just open space. Trails, biking trails, some great fishing, wildlife, beautiful scenery. And within our state parks, there's just so many fun things to do. We have 90 holes of golf, all within a five-minute radius. And in mid to late October, it's a wonderful time to come golf because all of the colors and the mountains have changed. And it's just an explosion of color. And it's, it's really breathtaking you know ryan you mentioned the uh, thing yeah uh, go ahead. I, I was about to say you you mentioned the state parks you know the good thing is you can literally get into salt lake on a plane and be on the slopes in in, in an hour uh but you can do something else you go to deer creek state park you've got the mm -hmm. world's longest overwater zip line <laughs> two miles two miles 
two miles, and I think people get there and don't realize what the heck they got themselves into. <laughs> yeah, because once you're right. on, you're not getting off. Once you're, you're on, you're on for the ride. Off. You are not getting That's off. That's right. You're well, about how, 500 how... feet above the water. So. Wow. That's cool. Because I'm used to zip lining where you're going from station to station. This is not the case. Mm-hmm. Well, you do go station to station, but the lengths of each part of the zip line are longer. And one of those lines is, like you said, the longest overwater zip line in the world. Pretty fun. Wow. I love it. Now, what's the biggest surprise for people other than the fact that everything is so accessible when they get here? The beauty and the scenery. And then one of the big surprises is whether it's the summer, whether it's the fall or the winter, we have this geothermal crater. It's this large dome shaped like a beehive, and you can walk to the middle of it. There's a 55-foot deep swimming area, and the water year-round is 90 to 95 degrees warm. Wow. It's mineral water. So we like to say it's the only place that you can ski and scuba dive in the same day in the world. So that's of one course, of our surprises. And, and of course, you'll probably, you'll, you'll probably promote it as like the healing waters. The healing waters. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Take a soak after a long day of skiing. That's right. And then you can have a drink now. It, 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 it's both. It's unbelievable. I mean, That's right. And I, by the way, I really believe in the off-season. Uh, I think the off-season was started by a bunch of escaped garmentos in New York who were freezing their you-know-what's off in February and then said, let's go to the Caribbean. I love coming to Utah September, October for me, those are the magic months. Uh, by the way, I'm not a skier, but I do ride a mean lift. But the bottom line is, this is the time to do it. And uh, wow. And the, and the state parks here, you know, everybody gets hung up on national parks. Take a look at the map next time. Look at national parks and then look within five or six miles of many of them. You know what you're going to find? A state park, which is not as crowded, not as congested, no long lines, and just as great an experience. Ryan Starks. Be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. And earlier in the show, you heard me mention something called the National Ability Center. It's based right here in Park City, and an opportunity for you, anytime you come to Utah, or especially Park City, to volunteer and get out there and help the people who need it the most. And as I always say, in talking about local volunteer opportunities, who better to show you the town when you're finished helping out than the people who actually live here? The CEO of the NAC is Kevin Stickelman. Welcome, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, I'm talking about volunteering at the NAC. What is the NAC? So the National Ability Center provides adaptive outdoor recreation programs to thousands of individuals from all 50 states, 13 countries around the world every year. And we are growing by leaps and bounds. But let's get down to a definition, adaptive. Adaptive. It's for people of all abilities. We serve everyone from kids with autism in our camps to veterans who are just back from a battlefield that have life-changing wounds when they return to, to the States. And so you name it, we, we believe that anybody with any ability can get out and recreate just the way anyone else can. And of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that you're going to match that area of recreation to their particular needs. So you're not going to have me climb a mountain if X. I, I wouldn't limit it to that. Uh, really? But yes, I mean, we, we take wheelchair users rock climbing. Um, we take quadriplegics water skiing. So there's a, there's a lot of different things that we can do with our instructors and the adaptive equipment that we have and our volunteers that help support the programs to get people out in areas that you would never imagine. And that's all year long. Year-round, yeah. We do skiing and snowboarding all winter here in Park City and actually three other resorts as well here in Utah and rafting in the summer out of Moab and hiking, camping, backpacking, mountain biking, you name it, it's probably on our list of programs. Now, for the people who are working with you full-time, you also have to train them. We do, and you know we have the ability to recruit from across the country. Our therapeutic recreational staff are just second to none. Um, we have internship programs, which is a huge breeding ground for future staff members for us, and we're the biggest organization of our kind in the nation, so it makes us a draw. All right, so I'm, I'm going to put myself in a position of I want to come and volunteer next time I'm in Park City. I think I'm a reasonably able-bodied person, but that doesn't mean I'm prepared to help you yet. How do I do it? Well, so you can go on our website and sign up. We've got orientations that take place. By the way, the website is? DiscoverNAC.org. And there's orientations for volunteers that go on all the time. You know, Peter, we need volunteers not just for our programs, but for everything. We have, you know, physicians, we have school teachers, we have attorneys, we have people who come and help with maintenance around the area. And so there's. See, I've always said when it comes to volunteering, 
if you're the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, there's something you can bring to the party. That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. So give me a couple of examples where it's been life-changing for the volunteers. Yeah, I mean, we, we make magic happen. We have seen kids take their very first steps in our equestrian programs after getting out of a hippotherapy session. We've seen couples tra- traumatized by PTSD when one of the individuals comes home from war who have reunited and rekindled that romance on our challenge course. It's just amazing. Because if they can do the challenge course, they can do just about anything else. You have to trust each other, and it breaks down a lot of barriers. What would you say is the most challenging thing that you've got for, for anybody? You know, I think the most challenging thing that we have, it really depends on the individual. We have some thrilling uh, skiing here in our backyard that is extreme terrain, and it gets people up and out there. We have some amazing rafting opportunities and mountain biking it really depends on your level of risk. And we believe that risk is inherent to the sport and there's dignity in that. And so we challenge you as far as you, as far as you want to push yourself. Of course, the other four-letter word that comes into play is fear. That's right. And that's also a stereotype, right? There's a lot of people that come in fearful of them not being able to accomplish that goal or not being able to do that. Activity. I would assume that a majority of the people do have that fear when they come in. They have to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And some people want to see it. Some people want to get scared. They want to push the boundaries. And then others, their fear may be putting on a ski boot. That might be a major accomplishment because they never thought they'd be able to do that after an ankle injury or whatever the circumstance. I'm reminded of a story of Chester, oh, 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 oh Admiral Rickover who was the father of the Navy Submarine Command. And every commander who ever had an interview with him was terrified of the interview because if you didn't pass the interview, you couldn't have a command of a submarine. And the story is told, and it's a true story, that a guy who was up about to get the job as a commander of a sub was sitting in front of Rickover at his desk, and Rickover just said to him one, one sentence, he said, make me angry. <laughs> and the guy said, excuse me, sir? He said, make me angry. And the guy took his arm and completely cleared his desk. Things were breaking, crashing the floor. He got the job because he, he obeyed orders. Made him angry. Right. Yeah. So you got to make people angry sometimes. you got to make them scared sometimes. you got to make them step up. Well, and, and all of those things and be comfortable and overcome whatever their adversity is. You know, there has to be self-confidence as part of that process too. I'm going to ask an obvious question. I hope, I hope it's the right question. And that is how many of the people who've gone through the program are now in your program helping others? Quite a few. You know, we have lots of people who come as participants and come back as volunteers or staff. So that's possible, too. Oh, it is. And yeah. before we run out of time, anybody who comes here can come volunteer with you guys. They can, yeah. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to find a program. It's easy to find a way to support us. And what a great way to, to spend your time in Park City helping somebody else because, let's face it, guys, when you do that, you are also helping yourself. That's right. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. I was at the Aspen Food and Wine Festival earlier this summer, and I was amazed because, yeah, there was wine, but everybody else who was displaying was a distillery. And that was, I wasn't expecting to see that in America. Um, and and what, were they, what were they displaying? Single malt. They were displaying rye. There were some bourbons, but this was a big, and, and of course, vodka and gin. Uh, all new to America when you think about it, in terms of, 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 of artisanal producers, because when you go back a couple of years, you had artisanal breweries. Everybody's got breweries now. Um, I mean, and, and limited. Pro- I love to always limited production. Uh, but now my new guests uh, on the show own Alpine Distilling, and it's a distillery here. Actually, two distilleries here in Utah. Sarah and Rob Sargent, how are you guys? I'm doing great. Peter. We're, we're good. Thanks okay. for having us. You got it. So, I'm still amazed by this. First of all, why Utah for you guys? Because you're not you're not around from here. You're not really present. <laughs> Well, Utah is one of those states where very few people are around from here, right? Yeah. And so it's one of the nice things about the uh, frontier is uh, you can you can blaze new trails. Yeah, you can blaze new trails, which we're trying to do. It's obviously for us steeped very deeply in heritage. 
um, from from the craft perspective. Well, you come from Kentucky. I do. So the bourbon is in your blood. It literally is in my blood. My dad's a, a, a dentist, and when I when we teeth, you know, you put sugar cube in bourbon, and, and that's what you rub on the gum. So I've had bourbon in my system for 51 years now. So yeah. It's, so uh, no Novocaine, just so bourbon. No Novocaine. Okay, I mean, whiskey. It. It's, I mean, it's, you use what you make, right? So. Yeah, and on our farm we grew corn and hemp on our farm, and so the, uh, the hemp is a totally different discussion. But for the corn, you got to turn it into something. There's only so many grits you can eat, so you might as well make whiskey out of it. So it's uh, it, it lasts a lot longer, and certainly is a better commodity. And now here you are in Utah, and you're doing whiskey. We are. We're doing um, a uh, single malt. Uh, we're doing our single malt or Traveler's Rest, uh, which is 100% malted barley, American two-row barley. Uh, we age it in used uh, Buffalo Trace barrels, and so we'll finish with French oak. Uh, we've Buffalo some, Trace barrels. See, you, you brought the Kentucky with you. We did. We did. <laughs> and uh, they're wonderful. You know, they do such a great job. There's so many wonderful distilleries the, to learn from. And so for the single malt, for the Traveler's Rest, we're really excited that, that it's been so well received. But, are, Sarah, are there a lot of distilleries in Utah? Not really. Not really. No. F- Fifteen. Yeah. That's called not really. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, More or less. Is. Yeah. So, okay, you're doing single malt. You, are you doing bourbon? We are. Yeah, okay. our, our straight bourbon comes online in uh, October 11th of this year. And we've, I've you know, been, just for scientific reasons, pulling a little bit of sample to make sure it's good, and it's very good. It's good. It's right. very, very And you're good. still standing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, but I've seen a lot of gin coming out now, mm-hmm. vodka, rye we talked about. Are you doing rye? We are not cooking rye yet, um, but for gin, I don't know if it came up. My wife actually just got back from Scotland. She's one of the uh, first... She has a diploma in gin distilling. As you should. As she, absolutely. But yes. she, she passed her test uh, just a few days ago. A few days ago. I'm very proud of her. At the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy. Yeah. yeah. And so we're... Uh, we, we, is there a diploma? There is. I, have, I hold a diploma in gin. Is it framed yet? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty not exciting, many, though. Not many people can walk up the streets and down the streets of Utah saying they have a diploma in gin. That's right. That's and by right. the way, that, that will not get you out of prison. I'm sorry, but I have a diploma in gin. They're still going to take you away. Well, we might make friends in, in, in prison, though. If we, you know, oh, yeah, a lot of friends. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I got it. Prison gin. There it is. There we go. There we go. Oh, I'm going to write branding, this down. Branding. Actually, Peter, let me borrow that pen, Peter. I like that. Are you gonna, so you're going to start making gin? We, we do make gin. Actually, oh, you do? Um, our You son- made it without the diploma? <laughs> oh, I, we've been, I've been making gin for a while. Um, <laughs> our uh, Summit Gin is actually the highest-ranking U.S. gin. And the Barrel Select, which is the private label gin for St. Regis, won gold recently at the Women's uh, Wine and Spirits Competition in London. So the hotel is doing your private label. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, my wife made this. It's a women-driven initiative that she ran with a former chef here, and uh, it really is just a magnificent product. I'm very, very, very proud of, uh, of what she crafted. And I also think that having it here, I don't know, there's a really neat energy that comes from it. And there's such a wonderful bar staff here that... It's a, uh, it really is a delightful product in a delightful setting. I want to go back to the single malt because, first of all, everybody's making, they're making single malt in Iceland. They're making mm-hmm. single malt in Tasmania. We know about the Japanese, of course. Sure. But single malt in Utah is a, is a brave new world. Well, I mean, I, I would use this, Peter, as an analogy for travel. You, you see places where there are aspects of travel that should be steeped in tradition, and there are places that, where innovation is right. For us, we innovate in the way that Sarah uses botanicals and the way that we source botanicals. For our whiskey, we're doing it in, in a very traditional manner, and I think that people are responding favorably. And how long have you been doing the whiskey, the, the single malt? Well, I'm a multi-generation distiller. My dad's a distiller. My distiller. But how long have you been doing it here? Uh, almost three years. So we haven't come up with a 12-year bottle yet. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm waiting. You know, I go back to my original days coming to Utah as a correspondent for Newsweek, and the food sucked. Uh, I then remember we developed a show when I was an executive at Paramount, you may remember it, called MacGyver, and we shot it, the pilot, in Moab, and the food sucked. And then I came to, uh, to Park City or to Sundance, and they were like ski towns, and the food sucked. Something's happened. There's been an explosion, and uh, food doesn't suck anymore. Joining me now, the executive chef and owner of Tupelo. How's that for an introduction? Well, Matt Harris, how are you, man? I very much appreciate that. But and, and you're not from here. I am not from here. I know. Yeah. You, you started back in the South. I did. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Right. So. Now, Atlanta, Georgia is an interesting city because it's still evolving. 
And Atlanta, Georgia, look, you being a chef would know, would appreciate this. And I happen to believe this, and maybe you'll agree with me, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Atlanta, Georgia has the most number of unused kitchens of homes I've ever seen in my life. I would imagine, yeah. Because people are just eating out. They have these mansions with a stove that's never been used. Absolutely. There's so many great restaurants there. People yeah. just, they don't use their kitchens. They just go out every single night of the week. All right. Now let's segue to Park City. What happened here? What changed? A lot's changed here in the past, I would say in the past 10 years. A lot of... Um, New chefs, new influences have came to town, and, and the food scene has just absolutely radically changed. I would probably say in the past 10, 12 years. Yeah, because yeah. before that, I'm, I'm telling you, it was deep fried. Yeah, it was kind of a desert here. Yeah. Yeah. But now you can source everything. You can source everything here. Yeah. So, and, and of course, the people who are coming here have now their demands. I mean, they, they're expecting it now. No, absolutely. I mean, we have people come from New York, L.A. I mean, from Boston, New York City? New York City. <laughs> you like the way I say that? I, I had to do it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, it's yeah. okay. Or um, you could actually you could follow up by saying, you're not from around here now, are you? You're not from around here, are you? There you go. You there can. Okay. Go. But, yeah, you have, you have people coming from all over the world, all over the U.S., that are accustomed to really, really good restaurants and really great food. And they, they kind of demand that. And we've really raised the bar here in Park City where we have – Secured products and are delivering that here. So it's really great. Now, of course, you got part of your start with Jean George, who I know pretty well. Yep, absolutely. Um, in New York. Absolutely. So. I was with him when he opened restaurants in the Bahamas and everywhere mm-hmm. else. Yep. But the point is that's that's a tough that's a tough internship. It is a tough internship and it was it wasn't easy. But I spent I, I probably spent about six years with him or so. And uh, we actually that's how I came to came to Park City. And, opened and, and a hotel. Right, so the, the J&G Grill here is John George. Mm-hmm. It, yep. It's a, it's a John George restaurant, and that's how I happened to Park City. I opened this restaurant for him. And now, Bef- and now, and now Tupelo. Yep, before I opened my own restaurant, Tupelo. Yep. All right, so now everybody's got their own character, their own design, their own, their own definition of what their food is. Mm-hmm. What is your food? I would definitely say it's, it's kind of a, a homage to my, my home, you know, being in the south. It's, it's definitely a new American food with um, southern influences. So basically, so. if I'm looking for grits in uh, Park City, I'm going to find them? You definitely will. <laughs> you definitely will. And, and really good ones. All right. But that, that's new to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Totally new. Absolutely. You didn't see that prior to, probably prior to Tupelo, actually. But are you also working with local purveyors here we do i mean the local farmers here are absolutely fantastic i mean you would be really really surprised the the, um, local farmers and producers and ranchers here and the products that you can get here locally just from a hundred mile radius it's it's absolutely fantastic such as so the um a lot of the uh, wagyu beef and elk and items that come from a little bit south of here probably about a hundred miles um as well as vegetables that come right from right down the street are fantastic and seasonal absolutely absolutely but of course when you when you've got an airport and salt lakes by the way the cool thing about the salt lake airport let's call it what it is it never closes no it does not these guys have mastered the art of snow removal Mm -hmm. they 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 i've i haven't seen salt lake close maybe once in 20 years maybe it's actually a miracle as much snow as they get down there they never close so we, and by the way, if there's one drop of rain that gets in Miami, they close it. Oh, Atlanta as well. I yeah, mean, I know. You know. So, yeah. But the idea that you have an airport means you can source anything. We can source anything. I mean, we, we, we get everything from flown in from Hawaii to Maine. What's coming in from Hawaii? Fish. A, a lot of tuna, yeah. a lot of compachi, things like that. Um, we get harvest a lot of stuff from um, Maine as well as New York. Um, so... All right, now I, I got to yeah, ask you this sure. question because I ask it of every chef, so you're not off the hook. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Tupelo or even J and G here at the St. Regis, what was the one item you put on your menu that you thought this is going to be the killer item of all killer items? Everybody's going to order it, and it just tanked. And then I'll give you, I'll, I'll let you off the hook when mm-hmm. I, when, with the second one. What's the one item that you put on the menu saying? Why would anybody want to order this? I guess I have to put it on, and everybody loves it. Go. You got so, 20 seconds. So I, I would have to say a bone marrow dish I thought would just kill it, right? <laughs> and it just tanked. And then when I came to Park City, I put a catfish dish on the menu, and I thought that it would never sell, and it was the best seller. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. 
If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.